Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Carl Tannenbaum is with us from uh, Northern Trust, former uh, official at the Chicago Fed. So perfect person to ask about this dichotomy between Fed funds futures trading and uh, sovereign markets trading. Um, Carl, the idea that um, the Fed is not going to move, uh, there seems to be a split in the markets about how likely that is. It's not that sovereigns are, are saying it's definitely going to happen, but there seems to be more optimism among active traders than futures traders. Mike, I think the split in the markets also reflects the split within the Federal Reserve governance as well. I think there's going to be a very active discussion next week. About that was the, the, use the de word Dennis Lockhart used uh, yesterday, or, or Monday, rather. Yeah, I think that there certainly are those who feel quite satisfied with the way that the American economy has performed. They will point to the fact that we're, if not at full employment, very close to it. They'll point to the fact that the international uncertainties that tortured us at the beginning of the summer have clearly eased. And uh, they feel more confident that we're on the way to the 2% inflation target. And then there are others who would point to the notion that we aren't at the inflation target, that we don't seem to be able to create much inflation, that uh, taking the next step should not be taken lightly given the potential impact on markets and emerging markets, and that the cost of waiting is probably very low right now, whereas the cost of advancing too soon is very high. My sense is that the middle of the committee is more sympathetic to that latter set of arguments, which will lead them to temporize in September. But I think that they have an opportunity to communicate very carefully with the markets so that the WERP screen on Bloomberg that we all follow very closely gets as close as possible to 100% for the December move, assuming that everything lines up for it. What would you put the percentage at for a September move? Like the Fed, I'll cover my hindquarters by saying it's data dependent. But if you tell me <laughs> that we'll continue to have unemployment uh, gains, let's say, in the 150,000 range, which is fine because 100,000 is break even, we don't have any international incidents and inflation continues to either stay where it is or move forward, I would say the odds for December are pretty high, 80%, I would say. Within the parlor game, uh, Carl, in a week away from September 21. Essentially, we're there. The Fed talent has gone quiet, as they do before a, a Fed meeting. Frame the voting around Chair Yellen right now. How hawkish, how dovish is the Fed? And I say that because Marty Feldstein yesterday on the show mentioned that Mr. Rosengren is taking a different tack. Is the arch dove? I think the voices on either side of the tightening question have gotten louder and louder. I think that's probably... Are they shrill or just louder? I think they're louder, but I think the 
dissonance, if you will, Tom, is probably one of the reasons why market participants are complaining about the Fed's communication and credibility. It sometimes uh, strikes me that uh, in our desire for more from the central bank, which we've gotten over the last 30 years, we're perhaps getting less in terms of clarity. Uh, if I were directing the Fed's communications, and God help the central bank if I were, I would advise that maybe we ought to have a huddle and decide a little bit more uh, cogently what we want to communicate and who says it and when. I think Janet's a great leader. She's been holding the middle and building the consensus, and I think she'll do a good job inside the room. But once they leave, again, between September and December, I hope that the communication is crisp, and I hope that that clarity starts with the press conference that she'll hold in the wake of the meeting. How do they explain why you would be able to say you'll go in December, but not, I mean, if they want to do it in December, what's the difference between September and December? Mike, I think it's just the accumulation of evidence, and I think it all has to do with inflation, which continues to be a paradox. We've had a seven-year expansion. We've had immense monetary accommodation. Those conditions usually would have absorbed a lot of the economic capacity by now and put upward pressure on prices. Whether you look at it from a model perspective or build from the bottom up, this is puzzling. There are a lot of reasons why that might happen, but I think the Fed needs to understand what inflation dynamics look like today and feel confident that we'll get to the inflation target. I've had people say, well, what's the matter with 1.6 instead of 2? They're almost indistinguishable when you get into the measurement error around that uh, that factor. But it's shaping expectations. I think the Fed very much wants to make sure that inflation expectations not just remain anchored, but remain anchored at a fairly reasonable level so that we don't end up getting too close to that sort of Japanese perception, which can become more pernicious. Yeah, but is two months going to make a difference? I think so. I mean, if we haven't gotten there in seven years, I'm, I go back to the old uh, saying that Einstein never said about you know, the definition of insanity. Seven years, they haven't been able to create inflation. So we'll certainly give ourselves the opportunity to confirm that some of the uh, the international uncertainties have truly settled. Also, we you know had a softer first half. By then, uh, in December, we'll have the third quarter GDP, which most people are expecting to be awfully solid. We'll get two more months of job numbers. Timing with central banks is always a challenging thing. But I think, uh, it, to Tom's point, building the consensus so that she can walk out of there with maybe only one dissent in <clears throat> favor of a tightening, I think, is yeah. a, a, an art that she'll have a chance to, to craft over the next couple of months. Which, which pushes against the British model, folks, where there's a lot more dissent, collegial and constructive and academic dissent at the Bank of uh, England. Carl, where are you on this debate of measured versus a jump condition or a one-and-done attitude? If you establish a vector of moving from ultra-accommodative to whatever, is there a value to a Greenspanian measured approach? I think so. Uh, we are in virgin territory, not just with rates where they are, but with the global dynamics, uh, unlike anything that we've seen in our working lifetimes. And I think the Fed is probably correct in uh, taking caution. I think they should give us a little bit more guidance of on, on what their vector is, Tom, and I like that word very much, in not just making a move, but also telling us where they're going from there. But I think the Fed needs to understand a couple of things. One, they're at the edge of their effectiveness. I don't think that we want our central bank pushing to the degree that certainly Japan or yeah. ECB has. I don't think we want the Fed owning equities. Right. I don't think we want them owning more corporate bonds. And they need to recognize as well that ultra-low interest rates are very damaging to savers, pension funds, and these could be systemic issues down the road. Well, and systemic is certainly what Mike McKeon I see in our mail uh, as well. Mike, you know, I, I look at the blur out of National Association for Business economics, and it really sets up 
not only a wild week to the Fed meeting, but you, you really wonder where we're going to be after the December meeting. I mean, within the markets, within the correlations, and within the new agitation that we see. Well, that will depend, too, um, what Carl didn't mention on uh, the first Tuesday in November and what happens yeah. to the markets after and, that election. And Greg Vallier with, I think, a fabulous note this morning on the shift here in the Bloomberg poll uh, uh, showing Mr. Trump doing better than good in Ohio. Greg Vallier pointing out the shift now. In our fiscal deficit, maybe that's something to touch on here in the coming days, the idea of the deficit good news is just about over. That, according yesterday, to Jack Lew's U.S. Uh, Treasury. September 21st, Fed, 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 Fed. Michael McKee and I will be doing Fed, 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 Fed. In there's something a little more important. Michael, what do you have? Uh, we're just getting the official announcement. Bayer and Monsanto have agreed. Oh, I thought we had that. No, we had uh, reports that they were going to announce. It is official I took now. two Bayer aspirin. $128 per Monsanto share, which uh, translates to about a $56 billion total pack uh, in dollar terms. And let's just quickly note that uh, Monsanto share is now up 1% to 107.25. Bayer share is up 2.4%, €95.15. Yeah, well, Monsanto roughly 90 to 106 to 128 within that bidding process as well. I just put out on the Bloomberg Radio Plus app on your iPhone uh, the Japanese balance sheet because, Michael, on September 2021, we have something just as important as the Fed, if not more important. Yes, the Bank of Japan meets and uh, many, I wouldn't say, you can't say all eyes because we have our meeting, but uh, many of the world's eyes are going to be on Japan. Carl Tenenbaum with us with Northern Trust Company. Carl, what is distinctive about how Japan is trying to reflate versus how the U.S. or ECB are trying to reflate? The Fed and the Bank of Japan are two central banks going in opposite directions because the underlying circumstances of their economies are very different. Uh, the Japanese wish they could go back perhaps 25 years in time and fix mm. the banks right away after their financial crisis so that deflationary expectations didn't set in. But you can't uh, do monetary policy in retrospect. And given their demographics, they're having to pull out all the stops. Having just been in Japan early in July, it's apparent to everybody that helicopter money is de facto underway despite the protestations of both the president and the head of the central bank. The uh, Central Bank of Japan owns a what we would call a globally diversified uh, asset collection that includes a lot of government bonds that I was telling Mike I don't think will ever see the light of day. So essentially they're financing a lot of the government uh, spending that's going on. And they've got uh, a lot of ETFs. Okay. They, they own more than half of the ETFs that are listed in Japan. Let's go to surveillance. That's a beautiful summary. Mr. Tannenbaum, here's a surveillance 101 question of the day. Then why does the yen strengthen given that dire outlook. The markets, I think, are realizing that the natural constraints faced by the Japanese may inhibit the translation even of this massive, uh, what uh, Mr. Abe has called a bazooka of uh, strategy to translate to the Japanese economy. If you look at a curve of the Japanese labor force, which I don't know how to punch it up on Bloomberg, but we've looked at it at Northern Trust, the labor force in size is back to where it was 25 years ago. It's a big curve. And it's very hard to convince international investors that you have a dynamic economy into which it's wise to invest when you have that kind of demographic working against you. Well, what does uh, Japan do? What On the 21st, what does Kuroda-san do? 
he has to maintain the psychology that they're going to pull out all, all the stops, even if he suspects in his heart of hearts that it will be ineffective. I think a lot of the central banks around the world that have gone to these extraordinary measures, Mike, have got to at least keep up appearances so that they don't uh, you know, convince the markets that they have reached the edge of their effectiveness and therefore lose some of the, the increment in asset valuation that has been created by the sense that the central banks will do, in Draghi's words, whatever it will take. I mean, is he is he going to cut rates? Is he going to announce a uh, a, a helicopter buy? Is he going to expand QE? Balance sheet expansion is most likely. I think the Japanese, as well as the European Central Bank, have concluded that negative interest rates are of limited utility. They seem to be sowing more confusion uh, than creating uh, new leverage or or providing incentives for reallocation. The thing I would note is that if you're forcing portfolio reallocation towards riskier assets in the hope of creating a little bit more uh, economic activity or capital <clears throat> formation instead, yeah. what you may be uh, engendering is some overvaluation in markets that could be well, a threat to financial stability. Let me announce, as I always try to do, that I'll steal from anyone. Carl Tannenbaum, your chart on Japan labor force is stunning. I just sent it out on Bloomberg Radio Plus. I'll feature it on Facebook Live today, and I'll steal it from you and use it on Bloomberg Television uh, tomorrow. It, it's just amazing the flatness and leveling of their demographic And they, they've tried everything in the Third Arrow program, as you know, Tom. Uh, they have some talented young women who de- delay child raising because it is certainly not culturally uh, common or acceptable for them to return to the labor force after having children. Birth rates are low for that reason. The Japanese, for cultural, language, and other reasons, have not uh, been successful at uh, having immigrants come in. They have one of the lowest immigration rates in the developed world, uh, something they have in common, by the way, with the other developed and near-developed uh, Asian nations. And no. again, those are the only two ways that you're going to get a favorable <clears throat> demographic uh, trend, and it's hard to do anything right. else. Carl, thank you so much. Carl Tannenbaum with us with Northern Trust Company. Just spectacular and really to watch for that Bank of Japan meeting next week, our special coverage of that meeting worldwide. And in Tokyo, this is Bloomberg. We spoke yesterday to someone at EIA, energy uh, on oil, and he was truly one of the world's experts on demand for oil, and he read from the book of Phil Verlager. It was remarkable how he tilted towards the dynamics that Phil Verlager speaks of in modeling a lower oil price. Phil Verlager joins us now from P.K. Verlager. Phil, reaffirm your worries about demand for hydrocarbons. Tom, uh, good morning. Uh, I think that we have been overestimating uh, consumption, in part because the growth of consumption, in part because the uh, Energy Information Agency uh, does not follow the procedures that, say, the Bureau of Economic Analysis does, where they go back and they update their historical estimates. So they come up with a growth, for instance, in gasoline of about 2 2.5% year over year, when if you correct the data, correct the historical data, the growth rates closer to 1%, maybe a little bit below 1%. And that is beginning to that view is beginning to seep into the entire industry as inventories build up and and people look and say, well, we produced all this oil, we thought we could sell it, it's still sitting in tanks, and so 
growth is slow. This go, and this goes back to what your previous speakers have been saying about GDP. Growth, GDP growth is positive, but it's not very good, and it's not very good here. And it's slow in, Ch- in China. It's perhaps 5% in China, probably 4%. And en- oil use and energy use is inexorably tied to the uh, to GDP. So slow growth in the economy and energy use is growing slowly while production continues to grow. Well, are, are you in the, the we're balanced camp? I mean, we've heard that from a number of people uh, lately. Uh, are, are we balanced or are we still trying to find? Well, well I think we're probably still in a bit of a surplus. We were balanced in August when Nigerian production was down due to disruptions, when North Sea production was down. But if you look at the the best indicator, which is the market, the futures curve, the cash price, it suggests that supply is still a little bit greater than demand. But one of the questions, one of the things I've come to realize, especially since the August statement by the Saudi minister, that maybe they go along with a cut, is it balance in oil doesn't matter. You know, we're not balanced in gold. And if you create uh, the belief that the market's not, you're not going to dump on the market and the market's going to be balanced, uh, investors will buy futures and oil will go into storage and it'll stay in storage. I, I mean, it's, there's no problem with having high inventories if there's the right atmosphere, right atmosphere that's created just as, as okay. the banks try to create it. What's your price target then? I mean, you know, we had all sorts of analysis. You know, as you know, Phil, we had rationalization, 180, 60, 40. And then about 35 people really started framing bottom. Some got it right. Some were a little off. Some missed it. Where's your vector on oil? Well, I think the price will tr- oil will tend to trade uh, in terms of Brent in the 45, 55 range. But I think by the end of the year, we're going to be down below 40. We're going to be at 35. Wow. Because the... Because the uh, oil producers have not created the atmosphere, they haven't created the environment. Dennis is right on this, Dennis Cartman. And you, ha- you know, you have to create uh, an environment. Gold went through this from 2000 to about 2009, and then the pr- the uh, producers stock- uh, cut their hedges back, and they responded by uh, a little, and-, and investors rushed in and bought. There's still a surplus, and gold goes into inventories every month, but price doesn't come down that much. Price is volatile. But it is creating this expectation, you know, the expectation that the market is not going to go to 20. And if, the, if there's this expectation that the market's going to, going to bounce back to kind of this 40 to 50 or 45 to 55 range, then price will go down, and then the uh, investors will come in, paper traders, I call them, will come in, buy futures, and that will cause mm-hmm. oil to go into storage, just as gold goes into, into storage. And, and then that will kind of restore the range up. And so, you know, I'm not sure whether it's 40 to 50 or 45, 55. I mean, we we don't know that yet. But it's going to go down below that because the producers still haven't gotten the message that they have to manage expectation. They don't have to manage the glut. They don't have to manage uh, work this glut off. They just have to manage expectations. It's no different than my classmate Sam Fisher does and, uh, and the central bankers try to do in terms of inflation. How much can we manage expectations outside of this country? Uh, a lot of talk about you know what Russia is going to continue to do. Uh, Venezuela desperate for additional income. Uh, how much control over it do, does anybody have? Well, Russia and Saudi Arabia can manage that expectations pretty well because of the they're the two leading 
big exporters. Uh, we're not a big exporter. And if they, you know, if this meeting they're going to have in, in October uh, pulls something off and, and, and this meeting in, uh, in August in Algeria, if if they focus on it and focus on nobody's going to push it, push production up too much, then they probably can, can restore prices. Now, I, I give that a 15 to 20 percent probability mm-hmm. on the first go-around. Because, you know, it took us years to work inflation off after Volcker was head of the central bank, but we finally managed mm-hmm. it. And that's what, what, what the oil producers have to do is manage right. expectations. Venezuela is going to go away. I mean, the Venezuelan economy has failed, and I worry about what happens when it does fail. Phil, you do the economics, but away from that is the basic idea, is there value in oil upstream, downstream? Do you find the oil companies interesting to acquire, or are they a value trap? Uh, I have a paper coming out shortly with the group of 30, and I talk of big oil as being ossified. I think that the major oil companies have missed the boat by and large. Uh, you know, it's the, the one company that I admire, and I'm not an analyst, is ExxonMobil that manages to keep its costs under control. But the the big oil companies are mostly still wedded to the view that you, it's the big projects, the multi-billion-dollar projects that you have to pursue. Do they and do they have to gone. pursue those? Is there value there? There's no value there. There's no value in those new projects. Technology technology is overwhelming them. Global warming is overwhelming them. It, it, it yeah, it is the uh, the right. idea of borrowing to pay <clears throat> one's dividends strikes me as being I mean, a terribly bad idea. Mike, this week's talk is Kazakhstan. There's a there's a big oil field. Uh, Phil Virgo, only you would know this. How many billions of dollars have been pumped into that field in Kazakhstan? I think I think it's the, the Kashyyyk field. I think yeah. I saw yesterday something like forty billion dollars, or fifty. It is just it, <clears throat> it, it is a stunning sum. And uh, never again, never again should a company do that. Uh, you have the LNG project that Chevron just brought on down in uh, in Australia, and I think they that <clears throat> total project on that one was also something like forty-five or fifty billion dollars. And the industry, you know, the industry has always viewed that that they need something like ten or fifteen dollar a thousand cubic feet natural gas in the LNG market, and they, you know, they thought they were going to get it, they're, and they're getting five dollars in Japan now. It, it, you know, the the industry has been transformed. One, by slower economic growth, and, and, and as you keep saying, as I keep listening to you and listening to other Bloomberg people, we're not going to get that economic growth for, for some time. So the demand is going to grow slowly. Never enough time. We're going to have to leave it there, Phil. We're running out of time. We'll have you back for a longer uh, point here. Congratulations on that paper yeah, you're need, working on with Group need of to have him back because it's, it's just remarkable. And, of course, Verliger, sometimes an outlier call. But right now, Mike, I would call him. An outlier call. There's a lot of people looking for stability and even price increase. As we've seen, that has not happened this week. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Now we'll bring in Drew Matis, Drew Matis, uh, 
UBS Deputy Chief U.S. Economist. Drew Mattis. He's won a plethora uh, of awards. He's won a plethora of awards. Um, there's a plethora of data coming out. Uh, import prices, uh, you know, just an, an input into um, other calculations. But there's some numbers like retail sales coming out this week, Drew, that uh, will have some impact on the way people think about the economy. Yeah, I, you know, everyone's focused on the retail sales uh, and the inflation uh, numbers. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think this is going to be one that's going to make people think that uh, September really is in play. Uh, and, you know, to be honest with you, uh, September's uh, FOMC meeting and the markets is a bit like Lucy and the football. Uh, we've been through this before. We run up to get the, get all excited. Uh, Lucy yeah. pulls the football back, and, and we land on, on, on our um, – Posteriors or posterior? I, I don't even know because I'm not from Northern New Jersey. How to pronounce that word? But I mean, I, I think you know, really at UBS, our, our thoughts are that, that they're going to go in December, um, and that uh, it's not the actual evolution of the economy in near terms, uh, mm-hmm. you know, near term data points, but rather the the grinding pressure higher in terms of overall levels of economic activity. It has been a slow and steady grind, and people are missing it because it, it's so slow and so steady. Um, but when you look at everything getting tighter and the labor market getting tighter, wages starting to creep higher, uh, it all adds up to a picture where you know the Fed should be moving rates higher sooner rather than later. Which inflation series gets your attention? I've got service sector well over 3%, goods deflation – but then I got 14 other flavors in between. Which one does a pro like Drew Mattis look at right now? Uh, well, you know, to, to be honest with you, um, I, I look at wages. Uh, and, and there's actually very little link between wage and, and overall inflation. And, and if it does, it goes through the service side, which, as you know, is accelerating. But, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, put myself in Janet Yellen's shoes and how she looks at the world. And the simple fact of the matter is it's her and most of her colleagues were educated in a time when wage price spirals were, were the rage in economics. Um, and I think that it's very hard to walk away from something you were taught as being the truth, um, even if you know that perhaps that linkage isn't as strong as it, as it was taught when you were in school. Wow. Uh, so uh, long-winded way of saying that I looked at wage growth. I think wage growth will tell you everything you need to know about how fast the Fed thinks it needs to move. But I will point out that there have been some really interesting comments out of people like Williams and Rosengren, who two people pretty much on opposite sides of the spectrum at the Fed, who gave pretty much identical speeches, um, really hearkening back to, Tom, what you and I would remember as kind of like the golden days of the Fed. Um, you know, they hike rates uh, to extend the economic recovery, not to contract it. Um, and also noting that this whole idea that there's asymmetric risk because you're so close to zero, uh, really downplaying that. And, and I thought that was particularly telling from Rosengren, who mm-hmm. tends to be more dovish. Yeah, I, I, Mike, just I'll editorialize. I totally agree with Mr. Mattis on this. Yeah. Rosengren is a real shift. Are we risking, Drew, uh, financial market distortions by continuing this? I, I think we are, and I think that's part of what the, has the Fed worried is that they're seeing this reach for yield across a lot of different asset classes. Um, they're seeing um, less volatility than they would expect uh, up until recently. And, and I think they're just worried that uh, they might be creating something worse. I also think that they're beginning to think that perhaps if the economy accelerates, 
um, that they won't be able to go quickly enough, that the market is not prepared for them to go on an ongoing, steady basis. Um, and therefore, they have to kind of take these as they can get them. Uh, and they, you know, I'm not sure if they really tried to set us up for September or really they set us up for the setup in September to get us in going in December. Uh, but I do think they want to go this year. Uh, that's, I think, the prudent thing for them to want to do, and, and I think they will follow through on that. Drew T. Mattis with us, UBS, uh, senior economist. Thrilled to have him on. Drew, you have a wonderful page in your wonderfully granular research, which has four charts on it. And, folks, I want you to play a game with me. Look at the charts. It's radio, Mike. We can do this. Look at the charts and pretend you took your thumbs and covered over U.S. or America wherever they are in the page. Drew, these four inflation charts for America, if I didn't know it was America, I would think it was a disinflation of Europe. I'm looking at non-energy commodity, core finished consumer, capital equipment inflation, or outright disinflation, and core producer prices. I mean, it's almost Euro-like, isn't it? Well, I mean, everyone's doing the same policy, so why are we expecting different results? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, there's some great research out of Harvard uh, that uh, tries to explain why inflation expectations would go down when rates are uh, have been cut to zero. Um, and uh, what it basically uh, – the end result of the paper is that – uh, initially, you get an, an uptick in inflation expectations from low rates, uh, but the longer they persist, the more likely those inflation expectations will fall. Yeah. Well, uh, so, in, in you know layman's parlance, what that means is if you keep rates zero for too long, it begins to affect people's idea that the world will ever get back to normal, and they begin to expect extraordinarily <laughs> low inflation over a long period of time. So the Fed policy can be self-defeating. Okay, and now, folks, we go to the wonky end of things. We can do that with Drew Mattis of UBS. Drew, what you said there was absolutely key. If you get a chronic or inertial force of disinflation, do we flip from a traditional orthodox analysis of inflation to, to use the, the phrase in vogue, a neo-fisherian outlook on inflation? Do you get that shift, not because you believe in the shift or whatever, or do you simply get it because of the chronic nature of disinflation? Well, I, I think it's interesting. So, they, you know, people call it neo-fisherian, um, and 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 people kind of scoff at it. And if you're an economist, the best way to be ignored at a cocktail party is to say you believe in it. But the problem is, is that the models we have do not work. The models we have would tell us that a low-rate environment would see a, a surge in capex, a reduction in savings on the part of the consumer and more spending because consumers are not being incentivized to save money. And instead, we've seen a decline in savings and a decline in CapEx relative to where we would think it would be. Um, and no one, no one anywhere is asking why our models aren't working and how we get them to work better. Um, and the people who do then are mocked uh, for being neo-fisherian. Uh, you don't have to be, you don't have to believe in that particular view of the world to just understand that uh, if people are approaching retirement and you tell them they're going to get 0% on, on yields on their assets for X number of years into retirement, that they have to save more. All right. So I think this is mm -hmm. a case where maybe we should put aside the, you know, the regressions. And, and the entire economics profession has gotten into this idea that if you can do a two-factor regression, you might as well do a 200-factor regression because that means you're smarter than everyone else. Uh, you know, simpler things are better. 
Um, and if you can't, if it's, you know, you just need to use your common sense from time to time and think about whether something makes sense or not. Uh, and if I'm 50 years old approaching retirement and I think the 10-year yield is going to be below 2% for the rest of my life, I need more money for retirement. That's as simple as I can make it, um, and I think that's what's yeah, driving the economy you, right now. Did, Mike, did you see how Mr. Mattis said they're 50 and approaching retirement? Do we know anybody in that group? Is that a subset of zero? John Tucker helps No, we don't know anybody. Age 50 I mean, and approaching <laughs> retirement? I think what that's Drew just said is that I'll be working. We're all approaching death. We're just doing <laughs> <Okay>. it. <laughs> yeah. Mike, that's a, that's a little bit death. closer to it. Um, <laughs> and, and when he mentions people doing... 2,000 regression uh, charts. Um, Love that. Um, uh, but uh, <laughs> can the f- here's the basic question. If we keep interest rates where they are, are we going to get inflation? Is there a connection anymore? You talk about inflation expectations after a while start to fall. Uh, seven years on, we haven't got inflation. So is it going to happen? Is it worth keeping rates where they are to make it happen? Well, I, I think before we started um, looking at inflation expectations all the time and surveying inflation expectations, um, the, you know, the, the, the big problem is is that most people nowadays, now that we're paying so much attention to inflation expectations, most of those people who are responding or, or trying to, you know, um, are, are the are the underlying group that they're they're surveying effectively, uh, don't remember a time when inflation was high. Um, you know, four percent inflation was two thousand five. Right? We're not talking about ancient history in terms of inflation, and that, that was not uncontrolled inflation. That was just a kind of a stable 4% inflation rate for a period of time, um, and we all survived it. But, you know, if you're holding a U.S. 10-year note at, you know, 160 and you have 4% inflation for a year or two, um, that, that doesn't seem like the best idea. Well, what then should the Fed be doing? Um, if they were to do what the Bank of Japan's doing and do an audit of their monetary policy. What would it What would it tell them? Uh, I would remind them that uh, you know if they're thinking about the rest of the world, you need to think about how you could take the pressure off the rest of the world, and that a lot of the what they should ask themselves why the rest of the world is at such extremely low interest rates, and maybe just maybe it has something to do with the fact that the Fed is at an abnormally low interest rate given its employment growth and unemployment rate. Drew Mattis, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with UBS. That was very enjoyable, Mike. Yes, um, especially the reminder of how old we are. Yeah, well, I liked it. I want to point out, folks, I didn't want to cut into the incredibly uh, smart thoughts of Mr. Mattis, but I feel like I have to every time because we really try to be jargon-free. Neil Fisher, which a lot of people are learning about in this summer and autumn of 2016, is not Stan Fisher of the Fed. It is Irving Fisher of Yale University 80 years ago, 80 years ago. We were kidding with Bob Schiller uh, that that he took classes with Professor Fisher, but that's not quite active. He was revered, uh, there's no other way to put it, among economists, even those, Mike, that disagreed with Irving Fisher, adored his work. And he was truly a giant. And uh, with all of his flaws and, and all of his interesting views on the Depression and investment, et cetera. But neo-fisherian means new Irving Fisher. And we, I feel we have an obligation to mention that every time we talk about 
lower rates bringing on lower inflation, which, yep. as Drew said, is enough to stop a cocktail party. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.